morning, everybody. We will be in the Gospel reading, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I'm just going to jump straight in. Um, this is a really familiar passage. Very familiar. I would also say it's one of those that's misunderstood, ergo often misused. It's one of those passages of Scripture. Now we're probably really familiar with it, all of us. You know, it's when someone sins against you, uh, here's what to do, here's how to handle it. Now, that much is true. That much is clear about this. This isn't about communication issues. This isn't about sort of general conflict resolution. This isn't about how you work out personal grievances with each other. It is about sin, the dangers of sin, and how a a community navigates that. Um, As you know, I don't have to, like, tell you this. There's a lot of places, plenty of places for this to go poorly and for this to go wonky. Plenty. And you probably have stories of that and I have stories of that. Um, I know we all do. Uh, This passage has certainly been used in uh, harmful ways, tyrannical ways in the past. But I don't want to miss, I don't want to neglect it just because it's been misused. When when others have, as Ryle says, perverted it and made it into poison we still want to press in all the more and to listen really carefully and and come with humility of heart to what Jesus is saying here. So we're going to break it up into two parts, 15 to 17 and then 18 to 20. So let's begin with 15 to 17. This is part one, uh, how to handle sin. And I kind of need to build into it before I begin in that first verse. Uh, This passage is part of a pretty long Uh, red letter discourse, i.e. one of Jesus's teachings. He's talking to the 12. Need to remember that about the discipling community. How do you shepherd the community? Uh, The focus here isn't on the individual believer, even though that's part of the instruction that happens. Jesus is talking about how we do community together, how we do Christian community. And he's tending to the nitty gritty of community life. He's getting pretty practical at points. Jesus doesn't always get practical. He's getting practical here. So he's teaching the 12 and he's teaching us how we handle unresolved sin. Uh, Matthew 18 and 19 have been called a community rule for the disciple-making community. And that's a good way to think of it. Community rule. That is the big picture concern. I want you to hear that as the defining context here. Even when Jesus is commenting on how we handle one-to-one relationships, the point is the community. It's about the community, how we deal with each other. Now, we need to hear this certainly at least as sort of best practices. But there are other passages that talk about conflict. This isn't the only one. So it is a litmus test. It is not the litmus test. So I want you to think of this as one very essential piece in like a larger scriptural mosaic of how we do our life together. This entire section, and by that I mean 15 to 17, remember this because this is really key. It's addressed to a singular you. So like you as a person, not y'all. Okay, that's important. While it applies to leaders, sure, I I think it applies to all disciples. It makes it you personal because it's talking about any disciple in the body of Jesus. Okay, any disciple. Uh, These are Christians living in close community. So even though we take this as maybe directed us as the church, uh, we need to think about the context here a little bit in terms of how Jesus means it. Uh, This is to his inner circle of followers, maybe a little bit broader circle. This is that scrappy group that's pretty small in numbers, 
It's more intimate, more communal, more organic than most churches. So it's a fairly small group that he's talking about in community. So this is before church existed. Okay, this is pre-Pentecost. So this is a scraggly bunch of everyday followers and their rabbi. So it's not necessarily how our modern mind might think of church. It's very, what I want you to hear in this, it's, it's very personal. There's a heavy level of investment here uh, as Jesus uh, speaks these things to them. And it does have import for us, but I just want us to have a sense for that. There's a really, if you read that first line, if, a, if your brother or sister sins against you, some of your translations say that. Who, who has that in their Bible? The against. See some hands. Not all of them do. This is a really strong point of debate. And it does change the meaning, right? Someone sins and you talk to them about it. Versus someone sins against you and you talk to them about it. Uh, There's debate there. I'm not going to get into that fully. I tend to lean towards just the sins, not the against you part for various reasons. But I think regardless, uh, the meaning is the same. There's a call to sort of get your heart in order before you approach someone else, right? You got to clear out the speck or the log in your own eye because that could be clouding your vision. You got to take care of that first, okay? First order of business. So whether it's against you, whether it's like someone sins against you personally or you know of sin, you still deal with it, but you deal with your own stuff first. Now, what I want you to hear really, really so loud and clear about this passage, here's the heart behind it. The heart behind it is care and concern for the other person. That is why that you're confronting them in this instance. Whether they sin against you or they just sin, doesn't matter. So this is not about um, getting them to apologize. It's not about being vindicated. It's not about being right. It's not about being punitive in the least. This is a very pastoral concern. There's a shepherd's heart here with how they're approaching this other person. This is Christian love and charity. It just is. Now, how do I know that? Well, Jesus offers a picture of this in Matthew 18, 12 to 14. It immediately precedes this. It sets the context. Here's what he says. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the heart behind this confrontation that we're seeing uh, in 15 through 20. That's the heart. That's, it's the concern for the other person. That is the thing. That's the motivation, a shepherd's heart. And let's remember, again, this familial language. If a brother or sister sins, okay? These are people who are part of your community and you have a relationship with, so it's personal and it's invested. You're committed to their good because we're all connected in Jesus. There is a sense of timeliness here. There is a sense of gravity here. Uh, you'll, you hear it in the passage, don't you? Um, sin must be addressed. Okay, there's no question there. The language Jesus puts around it, as we will see, is one of rescues. There's this sense of danger that Jesus puts around it. Unattended to sin is dangerous to our souls. It can be a cancer if left unattended within the community. So he's really clear that sin isn't to be tolerated in the discipleship community. We, we deal with it. When we see it, we deal with it. Okay, let's walk this out uh, to see how Jesus gets into the specifics. Verse 15, again, very familiar. If your brother or sister sins against you, or if your brother or sister sins, go and tell him his fault. 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother or your sister. Okay, plan A. We'll call this plan A, okay? Jesus doesn't detail what the sin is. I think that's good because it's not important. But he does assume that the sin is clear here and evident. So there's not a debate of, mm, is it or is it not? The focus is not about someone's strong opinions about someone else. The focus is not on their personal beliefs. The focus is not on their personal convictions. It is about what God defines as sin, okay? Could be a sin of commission, something you do intentionally, right, uh, with volition behind it. Could be a sin of omission. Gosh, it was unintended. It wasn't without malice, but you still harm someone. So Jesus says, okay, if this happens, you speak to the person privately, not in public. Okay? When someone sins against you, you don't gossip about them. You don't assemble a contingent against them out of love. We've all seen that happen, haven't we? Right? Too many witch hunts happen this way. Think through... Have you ever heard a prayer request that's been shared in sort of a uh, passive-aggressive way? It's kind of like, oh, bless so-and-so's heart. He's just struggling with the alcoholism again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you heard these prayer requests? Everybody heard those? Right. It's kind of a way of mm, a little bit of a jab and also sort of an inappropriate sharing when you can tell, like, have you talked to this person about this? Okay, Jesus is saying, no, talk with them one-on-one. You deal with this in private. Okay? Deal with it in private. So you talk to him directly. Okay? You don't avoid it. You face it head on. So this is, again, plan A. Ideal situation. Hope for solution. But, or not really a but. It's more of an and. Um, Jesus does exhort us here to do it boldly and clearly. The verb here for uh, go and tell him or her, that's soft. It's a very strong verb. It literally means to confront them or to reprimand them. So uh, it's, not a, it's, not, uh, it's not a gentle word. The hope is always for repentance, that they would be saved or gained from their sin. I'll talk about that in a second. Again, I think the reason for that is the gravity. Jesus is saying sin is dangerous. We've got to take it seriously. It harms people. It brings harm to someone. It brings harm to the community. So, but the hope and the trajectory, which I'll, I'll remind us of again and again throughout here, is unto repentance, which is for the good of the soul. Uh, and it absolutely means that you need to be certain that you're not acting, if you're approaching this person, out of your own self-interest, out of your own self-righteousness, out of your own personal preferences, because you have an ax to grind, your own baggage, all, all that stuff. So we should always do this prayerfully, right? And kind of sifting our own heart. Jesus says, and again, we're still at plan A, verse 15, so if he or she listens to, you have gained them. Some of your translations say, or won them. Let me be clear. We're not talking about winning them from perdition, okay? This is not a salvation issue we're talking about. You're talking about gained them or won them back as in they were lost, but now they're found. It's about that gaining or winning back of that one sheep, okay? That wandering sheep. They've, been, they've wandered off. They've been brought back into the fold. And you're overjoyed when you find a lost sheep. That tells us about the heart posture behind what's going on here. That's plan A. Plan B. Verse 16. But if he or she doesn't listen to you, you take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, in other words, perhaps you get dismissed. 
Maybe you get blown off. Maybe you get kicked in the teeth. I don't know. There's a hundred ways for that to go down. Uh, You're probably familiar with it. So what you do is you bring two others, one or two others into the situation. This is not just anybody. These are people from the community, fellow believers who are invested in the life of this person and who are part of the discipleship community. And as for the reason, Jesus cites Deuteronomy 19.15. That's some of that legal sounding language you hear him using it, using there. What, what that verse says is you need to bring two to three witnesses uh, when someone was convicted of a wrongdoing or a crime. That was, again, back in uh, Levitical and, and Deuteronomic law. You needed more than one person to determine the veracity of a claim. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using a really popular principle, this multiple witnesses idea, uh, because any first century Jew would understand this. Jesus would say then, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I, I know that. So if this brother or sister won't listen to that one person, plan B is maybe he or she will listen to and be persuaded by a small gathering of the community. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't suggesting that we take the sinner and put him or her on trial. This is not a witch hunt. That's not what this is. The heart behind that is completely different. But there is a certain spiritual gravitas to it, which I hope you can hear. It is serious, right? Uh, but there is heart here and attention for the other person. Okay, that's plan B. What if plan A and plan B don't work? We go to plan C, verse 17. And this is a picture of an increasingly hard heart that's getting harder and harder as we move along. If he or she refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. And again, Jesus is envisioning a smaller gathering, but it still carries forward. If he refuses, he or she refuses to listen even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so if you'll notice in the language of the scriptures here, we've gone from a person who, quote, does not listen, listen to the stronger language, to someone who refuses to listen. So there's a hardening of heart that's going on here. Things are devolving. Okay? Things are going downhill. Sin is gaining ground here. So the wisdom of that smaller group has been rejected. So the discipling community, the local congregation, is brought in. Okay? So again, this is a very direct confrontation uh, and conversation. So this isn't gossip. This isn't murmuring. This isn't speculation. This is, we're going to do this as a family. We're going to do it right here. Uh, publicity and exposure has been limited to this point, you'll notice. Very carefully guarded, right? Uh, so the discipling community hasn't been brought in until now. This is like the necessary last-ditch, extreme, last resort. So the wider community only comes into play when everything else fails, okay? Perhaps the witness of the community will persuade this person. That is the hope. That is the hope. This is not a tribunal bent on judgment. There is still a pastoral shepherd's appeal to repent. But again, we can't take away the gravitas of that, can we? There's no way around it. It is the voice of the community, of brothers and sisters, in agreement, hoping for repentance. That is the hope. Now, obviously, uh, there are sad outcomes, and Jesus is pretty realistic about how that plays out. But if that person refuses to listen, even to this community, let him or her be to you as one outside of the community, a Gentile or tax collector. Now, some of you are going confused. Like, hold on a minute. Jesus has said that's not okay, and you're right about that. He is not endorsing excluding Gentiles 
tax collectors, not saying that's a good deal. He speaks against that on several occasions. He is using a contemporary example in a really conventional way because he knows his audience is going to get it. They know what that means. He says that they get it. Those are outsiders to the Jewish community. He's not offering judgment on that. He's just saying it needs to look like this. Now, folks, if you've ever walked through any situation like this, this does and should hurt the community. It hurts. This is an extreme, we should have never ended up here situation. It's a very honest, painful acknowledgement of what happens when poor choices are met with a stubborn and growing hard-heartedness. It's a very realistic view of how that lack of repentance affects the body. That sin at the beginning, which was seen as dangerous, has now grown and it's gained momentum and it's gotten quite a hold of this person as Jesus describes it. So this person is now seen as they're more committed to their sin nature than to Jesus. There's a real shift in the balance there. Again, not a salvific statement. I'm not talking about they're going to hell now. That's not what I'm talking about. But this is very sad, and it does become a matter of God's discipline. So, and this is where I think this passage has been misused a lot. Um, While verse 17, which we're still on, while this is not the definitive proof text for church discipline, Jesus is describing something of how the discipling community is to respond to hard-heartedness and just an unrepentant posture of heart. Uh, And I will say from experience that healthy churches do practice some form of church discipline. How that plays out, it just varies based off tradition to tradition. So let me, let me take another tack at it, see if this, this makes it a bit more, put some, some human flesh on it. It's a little bit like this. Have you ever been in flight from God? Who's been in flight from God at some point in their life? It might be dramatic, it might not, okay? doesn't matter. There is a point in which <clears throat> the Lord sometimes says, and usually after a lot of patience and a lot of second chances with us, okay, If you desire to persist in this, in this sin, I'm going to let you have what you want. I'm going to give you over to it, and I'm going to remove my hand. So literally, sometimes God giving us what we're asking for, which is the freedom to go our own way and set our own rules, sometimes just the consequences of that is God's discipline in and of itself. Okay? I'm going to give you what you want. Freedom, which, again, in this case is is misused. So this is the hard part as a parent, especially uh, for me. I just I wrestle with this, um, but I get it, too. Will the Lord allow you to wreck your life with poor choices if that's what it takes for you to come to your senses? He will. (laughs) He will. The hope is that we'll come back like the prodigal son, right? That's always the hope. We can't forget that in these verses. Please, please hear me in that. But sometimes folks go their own way and the Lord releases them and says, okay, I'm going to take my hand off, off you in a sense. And the church and the discipling community moves in concert with the Lord's discipline uh, with redemptive, restorative aims. Okay? But this is always difficult. It's always painful and can often feel like a full soap to hold on to that restoration, that redemption. And just to be clear, when I say God takes his hand off us, I don't mean he just... Pff, 
fine, I'm done with you. That's not the posture. Think of the father in the parable of the prodigal son, right? When the son thinks to come back, the father's waiting for him, okay? So there's tremendous heart. But sometimes God just releases and says, okay, I'm going to let you have this. And we live with the consequences of that. Sometimes that becomes the discipline in itself. Okay, pivot, verses 18 through 20. Uh, I'll just read the whole thing. Yeah. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus adds some heft here by saying, truly, which is like the verily, verily for our, for our King Jimmy uh, fans. Listen up. Listen up. One thing we need to note here, that individual you I talked about for a few verses shifts here. It goes to y'all. Okay. We go from the singular to the plural. Y'all. Okay. Twelve disciples. I'm talking to you. And Jesus launches into here essentially the theme of spiritual authority, something he's going to entrust the disciples with. Uh, I'd like to think they're shaking in their boots hearing this. Because this is a very profound and weighty uh, responsibility that nobody would probably chase after if they knew uh, what, it, uh, what it cost. So verse 18, binding, loosing, which is the language of tying and untying. This is almost identical to Peter's commission back in Matthew 16. Remember that? I'm good. The things that you bind on earth, bound in heaven. The things that you loose on earth, loosed in heaven. Again, but with this part, this time, it's with those plural y'alls. This is a rabbinic thing Jesus is pulling on here. Binding means things we forbid. Okay, these things are not okay. Loosing means things we permit. Okay, these are good. These are fine. So in bestowing spiritual authority upon them, Jesus doesn't tarry too much on specifics. I wish he would. A list of like, here's the list, guys. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Like, man, that would have been great. He doesn't do that. (laughs) He focuses more on the consequences of that binding and loosing. And he gives that direct correlation of, you know, again, bound on earth, bound in heaven. Loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. So the disciples here, they bear a certain spiritual authority and role in the community, in the church. I think we can read this in more general terms. I think this could be spoken of as, as church leadership, you know, kind of generally. Uh, this is God calling leaders and, and equipping them, right? Spiritual authority, it's part and parcel of the provision to lead the community. And I, speaking from experience, this thing should scare the fool out of you because <laughs> it does me some days. There's a tremendous sense of weight, responsibility, and humility that comes with it. I came across some pictures this week of Lincoln, President Lincoln, uh, before his presidency and a few years in. Oh, my gosh. You want to talk about age. I mean, that brother, it was like, it looked like it took, put 10 or 15 years on him because of that responsibility and that sense of authority of trying to manage that, handle it well and justly and all that stuff. It's really striking. Google if you think about it. This authority, it's, it, it's a serving role. It's a sacrificial role to lead the church. Um, and we should never give it to somebody who's ambitious. We have to be really careful about that because they'll often misuse it. It's tricky. Uh, I loved, uh, was it last week, Paul? Were you talking about binding and loosing? Or was it two weeks ago? Whenever that was. I remember you talking about binding and loosing. And you were so honest. Like, man, 
I kind of know what to make of this. And there are very strong opinions about what it means specifically. Uh, I wrestled with that all week. Some really think it is you're condemning or you're forgiving someone, right? It's to the, even to the point of like salvation. I mean, it gets pretty, people get pretty hardcore about this. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church often takes this passage as an example of church discipline in its extreme, i.e. excommunication. Others think it's more general, right? It's just about the discipline community affirming what's, you know, what's righteous and good and what's sinful, right? What's permitted, loosed, what's bound, uh, what isn't. But honestly, guys, I just both views are similar in, in what they, where they end up, right? Jesus grants spiritual authority to the leaders of his church. The leaders guide the flock, and they have the necessary and the needed authority to do it. And they bear the responsibility of doing that. So uh, just last comment on 18 here. While Jesus is commenting specifically on how to handle sin in the community, I think there's a larger principle at work here. Spiritual authority is about more than just discipline, right? Christian leaders, they shape their church culture in very immeasurable and life-giving ways. So binding and loosening happens in many other ways in the life of the community. 19. Again, I say to you, which is again, a listen up. He mirrors verse 16. He mentions that two or three witnesses again. If two, if two or more of you agree on this, it will be done to you. Now, to, you needed a majority of witnesses to reach a decision on a ruling. Again, we're pulling back to that Deuteronomy reference. You needed two of the three to agree on a, uh, a decision. So Jesus is reiterating verse 18. Shepherds and leaders, these earthly decisions and rulings you make on the behalf of the community resonate in heaven. They have effects. What is, and think about it, guys. I mean, this is a principle that holds true for all human beings. Our decisions matter, right? Our earthly decisions matter in, this, in the scope of eternity. There ha- we have, our decisions have eternal reverberations and consequences. So this is just happens to sort of reiterate that truth, but on a, on a churchy, ecclesial level. But might I suggest that the context for 19 of two coming together and seeking some agreement on some matter is one of very prayerful petition. And I'm looking ahead to verse 20 a little bit and cheating because I think there's this language being gathered in Jesus' name. And there's a worship language. So this is not carte blanche, free prayer pass to lord over people in the discipleship community. That's not what this is. That is worldly power. That is not spiritual authority. There's a difference between power and authority in the scriptures. Tremendous. One is worldly, one is not. One is seized, one is granted and given by the Lord. The picture in 19, these are shepherds gathered in prayerful deliberation. Okay, Petitioning the Lord, seeking the good of this wayward brother or sister. That is the context. That is the picture. Not a human court of law. This is the discipling community, the household of God, the family. Okay, we have to keep that in our minds. People gathered over a common heart concern and a common concern. I love how Jesus ends this. This is heavy stuff, isn't it? He ends with a profound assurance and a comfort. Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. That's the assurance. I'm with you. Jesus is there. These shepherds are not alone in bearing the responsibility and decisions. It's not like, gosh, guys, here's some spiritual authority. Good luck with that. You bear the weight of it alone, and I hope you do the right thing. No, Jesus says, I am with you. 
I am with you. We are not left to our own devices and our own human wisdom in these difficult places, which this is, in these painful places, which this is. Jesus says, I am with you. I'm with you. This is, I mean, this is the Lord reiterating a very old promise. This is Emmanuel, isn't it? It's God with us. God dwelling with his people, promising to do that. God inhabiting the praises of his people. I'm with you. There's this really great rabbinic saying I came across. If two sit together and the words of the law are between them, isn't that a good image? The Shekinah, which is glory, Lord's glory, rests between them. Isn't that beautiful? Read that again. And where you hear Shekinah, put the name Jesus in there. If two sit together and the words of the law are between them, the Shekinah, Jesus, the glory of the Father, rests between them. I love that. This is kind of the Christianized version of that rabbinic saying. So this weighty responsibility concludes with encouragement and a call to take heart. Even in the midst of sin and discipline, I'm with you. I will help you in these things. I will not leave you. Jesus is describing healthy, normative Christian community. Right? Some of you have to go, is that how how I experienced church? Is that how I've seen things dealt with in church? We probably have a whole slew of stories about that of like, nope. (laughs) Guess what his next related topic is in the following verses. Anybody want to take a guess? Don't worry, I'm not going to preach on it. (laughs) Don't worry. He talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the very next thing and how radical that is. The parable of the unforgiving servant. So don't you love it? On the heels of this, what's there? Forgiveness. Lest we doubt God's heart and what our heart should be as we move into these things together. Okay. Close here. So, um, that's typically how it goes down, isn't it? Right? Just by the numbers. One, two, three steps and always works, right? I should hear incredible laughter. Or just a, you've got to be kidding me. Or someone should get up and throw something. I don't know. It's not foolproof, right? We know that. We blow it. Just because Jesus instructs us on how to live out this divine charge. Here's the community. Here's how I want it to look. It doesn't mean that everything gets God's stamp of approval for what we do. I want to suggest uh, that this passage points us in three different directions. Three different directions. And these will be easy to remember. Okay, and we'll end here. First thing, I think it invites us to courage. Courage. Or is, uh, how's it going, Uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz? Courage. You guys remember that? That's a, yeah, unnecessary. Courage. And this maybe is more, more appropriate to the conflict avoidant among us. Maybe. When we see sin... And again, not a violation of our personal beliefs, not a violation of our strong opinions. When we see sin, that's clear, we need to confront that person, okay? So there is a willingness here to have courage and to be bold on behalf of your brother and your sister for their good. Because sin is serious business and we don't sidestep sidestep it. It's for their good. And you have a vital role to play in the discipling community. And on behalf of your brother and sister. So courage. I do think this asks courage of us. Okay? So I have courage. Second thing. Love. 
you're going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Christian community, we're always going to talk about love. Okay, let me explain. Love. I hope you already have in your brain, uh, as I beat this dead horse, that the context of this passage makes it abundantly clear that what motivates this confrontation or this reprimand is love for the other person. Love for the other person. But these confrontations, as we know, and this is where things go wonky, they get mixed up with our own junk and they get mixed up with our own baggage and they get mixed up with our personal issues. In other words, we add our sin into the mix and whoop, that's a potent combination and up, we're off and running. Okay? So, when we do that, when we add our own sin, sin into the mix, whether that is the need to be right, whether that is the need to feel better than someone else, whether that is the need to feel some degree of power or authority, whether that is the need to feel like you're, you want to punch them because they've done something wrong, but you haven't. Things go poorly, and guess what? Further harm ensues. So here's the love piece. Yes, have their, their uh, well-being in mind when you talk with them. Here's the other thing. you got to do the work before the work. Here's what I mean. Before you confront another with their sin, you need to have taken a good hard look at the law of respect in your own eye. You've got to do that work or at least be really aware that you have one and how it affects how you see sort of self-awareness piece. So you need to be on your knees. You need to be asking the Lord for his wisdom as to what your stuff is. So you've got to do this internal work uh, first. That's a rather demanding level of self-awareness and honesty and submission to God. Okay, this is the work before the work. That's love. So you love them. You have a heart for them. You bring it to them for their own benefit. And in order to do that far more cleanly, you deal with your own stuff first. Okay, so courage, love. Last thing, hopefully this is a foregone conclusion, humility. Humility. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's level. Okay, you need to go into this with a, but for the grace of God, go I sort of attitude. We need that. When you know this in your heart, guess what? You approach your brother, your sister at eye level, right? Self-righteousness, it just doesn't have a place to take root. And the point of agreement and unity centers on Jesus. It centers on Jesus, what he's done for both of us. It's like that old rabbinic saying, if two sit together and the words of the law are between them, there, Jesus, the glory of the Father, rests between them, right? That's the point of agreement. That's the point of reference. Jesus is who makes these difficult conversations possible. And yes, redemptive. Redemptive. So alongside Jesus, we labor, we hope, and we pray for restoration and growth. Because but for the grace of God go I... And thank you, Lord, that the ground is level at the foot of your cross.